Hey, Scott, we're doing another score show. Really? What kind of empty, boring, lifeless, athematic, amelotic dreck are we listening to this time? This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where every word of what we say is wrong. We are continuing Star Wars Month with what promises to be a cavalcade of fun and games. After our analysis of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy scores, we are embarking on a whirlwind tour of the rest of the franchise, starting with John Williams' return for The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. We've already reviewed these scores more in-depth when we covered the movies, so we're just going to take a quick look at how they fit in with the rest of the saga. Hey Scott, do you think it's fair to call this Williams' triumphant return? Well, Force Awakens certainly was. I mean, after the prequel trilogy, he kind of needed a triumphant return. You mentioned we already covered these scores when we reviewed the movies. That's not actually completely true, because we covered the Force Awakens score before we did an episode about the movie. Because we were just so shocked and thrilled that the Force Awakens score was as good as it was. So the Force Awakens was indeed a triumphant return for John Williams just to sort of reinforce the message he was sending with the Return of the Sith end credits when he took up half of the end credits with the throne room and a return to the main title theme, which is just sort of a way of saying, hey, remember back when Star Wars movies were good? I could write really good scores for them. Don't blame me for this mess. And The Force Awakens score is sort of a continuation of that message. Said, hey, look, now that Star Wars movies are good again, I can write good scores for them again. Don't blame me for that mess. I think the score had the same job to do as the movie, to prove to audiences that yes, it's still possible to make good Star Wars movies. And it did that by hearkening back a lot to the original trilogy and really playing into a lot of reminiscence therapy. <laughs> and in terms of the score, there's a lot that's hearkening back to the style of the original trilogy. While you can still tell that Williams is obviously the same musical artist who wrote the prequel scores, there are touches here and there that are reminiscent, but there's a conscious effort, I think, to adopt much more of the style of the original trilogy. Well, the style, sure, I'll go along with that. I mean, when you say that he made this sound like a Star Wars score by doing a whole lot of references back to the original trilogy, I would probably have to disagree with you there. 
like the top three, I mean, depending on how you count them, maybe more, but at least like the top three most used themes in Force Awakens are original themes to Force Awakens. They're sequel trilogy themes. He's not filling the movie with Luke's theme and the Force theme and saying, see, remember these? Ha ha ha. He's, he's doing a Star Wars score with new themes for the new situations and new characters. Oh, yeah, there's a whole cast of really, really good new themes that still fit into that style and really carry it forward in some ways as well. Ray's theme, we mentioned when we were talking about this score years ago, is just a fantastic piece with several pieces that can be taken apart or put together in different combinations or played with different emotional bents. Ray's theme, I think, really is the backbone of the Force Awakens score. You've been talking a lot during the prequels about how there's no central backbone theme carrying the entire score, and we have that here. Absolutely. You mentioned how it can take many different emotional bents. It really struck me how much it's used in this movie in different ways like that. It's used to accentuate her loneliness, it's used to accentuate her determination, it's used to accentuate her excitement, it's used to accentuate her heroic deeds, it's used to accentuate her disappointment or devastation. It really reminded me of the way he used Luke's theme in A New Hope, where he used that one theme and it was the giant heroic march, and it was also the desolate isolation of Tatooine, and it was, it was also this impossibly naive rube in the middle of something much too big for him. And it was also the young hero triumphing over his adversaries. Ray's theme, in a very similar way, is used to accentuate so many different aspects of Ray. Just by taking that theme and tweaking it slightly and playing it on different instruments or with a different tempo or whatever. And it, it really struck me as very similar to the way he used Luke's theme in the original Star Wars. The other new theme that is most featured in the two sequel scores so far, I think is definitely Kylo Ren's suite of material. I don't want to call it one theme because it kind of isn't. There are three parts to Kylo Ren's material that represent different aspects of his character and again can be combined or used in different ways given the situation in the story. There's a sort of grand and imposing motif. And there's also this kind of digging, swirling string figure that I think symbolizes his pull to the dark side. Or rather, the pull that the dark side is exerting on him. The third one is a little longer and I think functions closer to a full theme. For situations where just the fanfare or the lower digging figure aren't enough. I think all of those really reflect the different parts of his characterization very well.
first listened to Force Awakens, I assumed that, like, one of those themes was a Kylo Ren theme, and another one was, like, a First Order theme. But listening to it again now, you're right, they are all sort of focused on Kylo himself. Like, there's a separate theme for Snoke, and there isn't really one central theme for the First Order absent Kylo Ren. Well, you see that especially toward the end of The Last Jedi, too, where the Kylo fanfare and the Kylo theme accompany him as he becomes the leader of the First Order and then come to stand for the First Order in the final battle. Well, yeah, but at that point, like, he is the First Order. Yeah, exactly. His music has subsumed anything that there might have been for the First Order. What The Force Awakens did, which is something I've been complaining about, well, for the listeners, it's only been one episode, but we've sort of spread out these recordings a bit. But the entire prequel trilogy, starting with The Phantom Menace, what I've been saying is that they stopped building tracks around themes. Like, the original trilogy, every track, or 90% of them, had a theme that the track was built around, and then it played off of it, and it incorporated other stuff, and it maybe did a variation, but most tracks had a theme that they're built around, even if it's a theme that's unique to that track, like the asteroid field, or hyperspace, or into the trap. They still have a central theme the track is built around. Phantom Menace didn't have that. Attack of the Clones had that in one track. Revenge of the Sith didn't have that. Force Awakens finally starts doing that again. With the first track that introduces Rey is completely built around her theme. The track where Rey and Finn try to escape from the Stormtroopers and eventually find the Millennium Falcon is completely built around this like fast-paced repeating pattern which you tell me is a Finn theme, which I did not know before. that whatever that melody is, the track is completely built around it. It plays off of it, it does other things, but then comes back to it. Other things interact with that melody. It's completely built around that melody and that tune. The attack of the Resistance X-Wings at the battle at the Maz Cantina, that track, once those X-Wings come in, that's completely built around the new Resistance March.
it's not like to the extent that the original trilogy did it, because the original trilogy did it in practically every track, but it is that same style finally returned. And the, the thing about that is that the other tracks that aren't centered around themes like that, when it's like some of the tracks that don't have a central theme, well, then you could say, okay, well, what is, what is this track doing? And, like, the track where the First Order destroys whatever that planet was that apparently is not Coruscant, but is some other government central capital planet. That track is just its own unique thing, and it isn't really centered on anything, it's just a track of destruction and despair. And within the context of The Force Awakens, that's fine, because it comes after four tracks that are all built around race theme. If you put that track in the middle of The Phantom Menace, I'm just going to go, ugh, another track with no center to it. So by building many of your tracks around themes, it gives you that freedom where you can take other tracks and go in weird directions with them. And that's okay, because most of the score still has a backbone to it. And that brings me to The Last Jedi, which doesn't really do that very much. No, it doesn't really. If The Force Awakens was a triumphant return, The Last Jedi is sort of a falling back toward the mean. It reminded me a lot more of those prequel scores in all of the very worst ways. I was very critical of The Last Jedi score when it first came out. You were, and I fought you on that, and I was wrong. I thought... You were right on that one. Tell your sister you were right. <laughs> I thought, as we were revisiting it for this project, that given a couple of years coming at it again with fresher ears, I thought I would be much more positively disposed to it. And for the most part, I wasn't. <laughs> there are very engaging pieces in The Last Jedi score. There are very engaging pieces in each of the three main storylines of the film. I am more positively disposed toward Rose's theme than I was when I first heard the score a couple of years ago. I think that kind of carries the thread of hope that the rest of the movie is missing.
So that's the function of that theme, and I think it functions well in that context. There are several engaging new variations on Ray's theme. There are scenes that I think are hearkening back to the middle section of Empire, where Williams was playing Luke's theme and the Force theme and Yoda's theme off each other during the training, that I think Williams is trying to do again to an extent with Ray's theme and the Force theme and the new theme that he gives Luke now that Luke has renounced heroism. There are times when those are playing off each other very engagingly, but those more engaging pieces are kind of short and easy to lose track of a little bit in a lengthy score. There are several really interesting sort of subtle variations on Rey's theme in The Last Jedi score, but there are no tracks in The Last Jedi that I think are completely built around Rey's theme the way there are a few in The Force Awakens. Like, there's a really interesting variation on Rey's theme and then the track moves on to Luke's theme, and then it moves on to the Force theme, and then the scene changes, and you get a quick rendition of Poe's theme, and a quick rendition of Leia's theme, and then some generic action-y music. It doesn't center on anything. It doesn't focus on anything. Like, 90% of the theme usage in The Last Jedi are quick hits. A quick hit of this theme, and a quick hit of that theme, and a quick hit of this theme. And I don't know if part of that is because the movie jumps around a lot, like, there's one particular track where I noted there's, like, a New Hope Death Star motif. And then there's a bit of Luke's theme, and then there's a bit of Kylo Ren's theme, and then there's some of Snoke's theme, and then there's a bit of Rose's theme. It just bounces all over the place. And it doesn't have a focus. It doesn't have, like, one thing that's, like, the theme of the track. Even if it's not someone's theme, even if it's an original melody, like Into the Trap or The Asteroid Field, there's nothing there that's like, this is the theme of this track. This is the center that everything else in the track revolves around and builds off of. Too much of The Last Jedi doesn't have that. Themes aren't quite needle-dropped the way they are in the prequels. Like, they're integrated into the rest of the track. It's not like material completely divorced from the theme, and then boom, a theme, and then more material that's completely divorced from the theme. They're integrated into the track, but they're still just sort of one-offs. They're still quick hits. And especially after The Force Awakens was such a return to form, that made The Last Jedi sort of very disappointing to me. The score really is the one disappointing aspect of the movie. Which kind of makes it stand out a little more. <laughs> and he did a lot of things that I appreciate. I was hoping that he would bring back the theme from The Jedi Steps, uh, from the end of The Force Awakens, because that was a fantastic, alluring piece. And he brought it back a couple of times in The Last Jedi to show that it's now become a place theme for the island that Luke is hiding out on. And I wonder what some parts of the score might have been like if instead of the new theme that Luke gets now that he's renounced heroism, 
if the Jedi Steps melody had associated with him, now that he's in this phase of his life, maybe it would have been a little too close to the Force theme, because it shares some of the qualities of mysticism of the Force theme. Maybe that was his thinking with the more kind of March-like setting that Luke's new theme is in a lot of the time. See, I felt sort of exactly the opposite. If you're going to give Luke a new theme, and this is like Luke after he's renounced heroism, after he's renounced the Force, this is, this is the super depressed failure Luke theme. When Luke comes back at the end, and for just a moment he gets his original theme when he first shows up, and then he has his scene with Leia, and then he steps out to face down Kylo Ren and the First Order army. And there's that amazing track of just, like, bold, heroic music when he steps out to face down the First Order. Why isn't that built on his new theme? Why isn't that his new theme, you know, play it on the big brass, give it an epic backup, turn it up to 11, and show, like, okay, even depressed, renouncing heroism Luke that is symbolized by this new theme, you can't hold Luke back. He's still the hero. He's still gonna step out and be the hero, and even this theme that symbolizes his desire to no longer be the hero can be turned a half a turn, and it now sounds like the hero. I mean, The Spark is a great track, but... In terms of storytelling, it would have been so much more if it had been built off of Luke's new theme. And it's just that sort of thing that it happens throughout The Last Jedi. That just each one is a small missed opportunity, but it's like two and a half hours of repeatedly small missed opportunities. Eventually they add up. Even the end credits suite isn't really a suite, it's just sort of a montage. It's got, like, a quick hit of this and a quick hit of that and a quick hit of the other. But it doesn't have, like, the long two or three minute theme suites that the other eight movies do. Well, it's an edited end credits suite made up of a few newly recorded pieces as well as some pieces from the movie edited in to get it to the right length for the exact length of the credits. <laughs> so, in terms of small missed opportunities, I definitely see your point there. The Force Awakens had a great end credit suite. The Force Awakens has, has we discussed this in, in our past show, but one of the best end credit suites. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that makes The Last Jedi so much more of a disappointment, because The Force Awakens was so good. You know, if The Force Awakens was like another Phantom Menace, then we could just go, okay, this isn't going to be any good, and just sort of write it off. You know, the way we did with the prequel movies. <laughs> But after The Force Awakens was so good, it generated more excitement that the next one's going to be just as good. And the movie paid off that excitement, and the score just doesn't really. I mean, it's good. There's a lot to like about it. There's a lot of bits that are great. You could edit a fantastic montage out of a lot of smaller bits from this score, and that would be amazing. It would take a little bit of work. But that's what it would be. It would be a montage. It wouldn't be a cohesive whole. It would be a montage of little bits. I would definitely hope for Episode Nine that maybe working with JJ again, maybe that was a good relationship that they developed on The Force Awakens, 
I definitely hope for Williams's second last Star Wars score. Well, technically, it's his third last Star Wars score. Yeah, sure. It's it. Yeah, yes, you're right. It's his third last Star Wars score ever. He knocked his first last Star Wars score out of the park, and uh, I think on his second last Star Wars score, the problem was that the manager told him to try to balance the bat on his head. <laughs> no, he was playing in the mascot costume. <laughs> Except the mascot was Jar Jar. So, I mean, here's hoping for his third and final, his last, last Star Wars score, unless he winds up doing the new Ryan Johnson trilogy. <laughs> Anything could happen. Again, for a more extended discussion of these scores, you can find our previous episodes on these movies. Now, let's move on to the other films of the Disney era not scored by John Williams, starting with Michael Giacchino's Rogue One. Giacchino was famously brought on very late in the process. He had about five minutes to write this score, I think. He told a story in an interview about uh, getting the call to do Rogue One, not sure that he wanted to do it after working so hard on other projects, and he was set to go on vacation, and he talked to his brother about it, and his brother said, You've been writing this score since you were ten. You can do this. And I think Rogue One really sounds like it's written by someone with the passion of a person who's been writing it since he was ten. The passion and the attention to detail in terms of tying it in extremely strongly to the original Star Wars. It does feel very much of a piece with that Star Wars milieu, even though it uses almost no Star Wars themes until the final track. Like, he uses his own Imperial theme, and then his own second Imperial theme, and his own Force theme, and a new theme for the new character, and virtually no actual just lifts from other Star Wars scores. Until the last track. Yeah, the original trilogy themes that are used are used very sparingly and dropped in in particular moments. I do think it's a little odd structurally that, I mean, the Empire has four themes in this movie. <laughs> right? Right? Because Giacchino's Imperial Suite has two distinct themes that are both used in the film, one more than the other, of course. brings back the New Hope Imperial theme in a couple of very deliberate iterations. <laughs> 
and Darth Vader's theme is in there a couple of times. Despite that, and a somewhat similar thing with uh, Chirrut and the Guardians of the Wills having a theme that stands in for the Force theme in terms of the mysticism element of the story, that could be muddled and confusing, but in the way that this score takes shape, I really don't think it is. And part of that is because the new themes are so, so good. The new themes are really, really good, but I think the most scathing indictment I could possibly give to this score is that the best tracks are the theme suites. That's true. Like, if we're going to reduce this down to the minimum listen like we did for Empire, would just listen to the last four tracks and you're good, and like we did with Attack of the Clones, which is basically just listen to Love Pledge in the arena and you're good, that minimum listen for this score is none of the tracks from the actual movie. All of this score sounds great, but none of it really features those themes super heavily. Only the Jin theme, really. Like, I think each of the Imperial themes gets, like, a track. The, like, the first track where Krennic finds the family has one of the Imperial themes really heavily, and then there's a later scene... I think when they're first testing the Death Star, I may be wrong about what scene that's from, where they use the other Imperial theme really heavily. But, like, other than each Imperial theme getting a track and Jin's theme getting featured in fits and starts throughout, nothing else really gets a showcase within the score itself. That's fair. Jin's theme is absolutely the backbone of the score. That is the theme that comes back over and over and over again in different ways, in different contexts. Yeah. And as good as the Chirrut theme is, it's probably used in the body of the score about three times <laughs> that I can recall. That's really disappointing to me, because that might be my favorite of those three or four, or however you want to count it. Of the new themes that G. Kino wrote for Rogue One, I think the Chirrut theme may be my favorite, but it's used the least out of all of them. And it never really gets, like, a major showcase for itself other than the suite at the end. And even that, it's a two-minute theme suite, so even that's not much.
I am very glad that we at least have those theme suites at the end that were written basically as editing material for the end credits, I suppose. There's also the new main title fanfare. which also features in the score about three times. Is it that many? Well, it's at least three, but one of them isn't on the CD. Oh, well, okay. There's the main title, Splash Screen, and then it's under Jin's speech to the Rebels. And then the one that didn't make it on the CD is later during the battle, when the um, Corvette rams the Star Destroyer to move it into the gate. Oh, okay, I, I wasn't, in my head, I wasn't counting the one that's the actual main title card. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't counting that as one of the three uses. Even as the Williams themes are used so sparingly, I think it's the style of the score and the orchestration, the use of instruments, that really, really sets it in the context of the original Star Wars specifically. There are so many flute pieces that ring so, so Star Wars to me. One criticism that I heard of this score, though, is that the end of the battle, when a lot of the brass and, and, and the action fanfares kind of drop out and the music becomes more gentle and emotional before it gets more sweeping as the Death Star fires on Scarif, that that sequence feels less like Star Wars and more like other Giacchino projects. Because the action music drops out so much while the space battle is still going on, and so that's contrasted. However... When we were listening to all of the Williams scores leading up to this, what struck me was the Order 66 montage in Revenge of the Sith, which, in a similar way, I think, has a mournful string passage over the Jedi being executed, over people fighting and the clones firing and, and, and all of that, and I think that contrast to convey the tragedy of it all is one of the things that they're going for with that sequence in Rogue One. So I think it doesn't move it out of the Star Wars milieu all that much. See, I was about to come on here and defend Giacchino, but then you had to compare it to something from Revenge of the Sith, which is a more scathing indictment than anything else I can think of. I don't know, I guess I'd have to listen to it again with that criticism in mind, but it didn't strike me as odd or out of place at all. The only thing that stood out to me as possibly feeling out of place or whatever would be the last scene with Darth Vader attacking all of the rebel troopers trying to get his USB drive back. You know, after the entire movie is just so firmly rooted in that original trilogy feeling of how the score is written and what instruments are used and what repeating background patterns there are, all of a sudden Darth Vader shows up and he's scored like he's the Nazgul. Ha 
mean is appropriate. It's not a bad way to score Darth Vader, but it's very out of step with the entire score that had come up to that point. Especially since right after that, they switch modes to literally aping A New Hope. I mean, Vader pretty much is the Nazgul, right? Inspires a debilitating sense of dread by supernatural means everywhere he goes. Yes, but the feel of a Star Wars original trilogy score and the feel of the Howard Shore Lord of the Rings scores is a very different feel. Very different, yes. So it's odd to have one for the entire movie and then all of a sudden the other shows up and then it comes out of that and switches over to literally aping the beginning of A New Hope. There are some hard shifts, yes. <laughs> and the chorus in that scene is extremely powerful after it had literally come in for the first time in the movie at the end of the previous scene. But still, overall, I find this to be an incredibly listenable score. Even in extended form, if you combine the album with the Oscar promo for a longer experience, it is so, so listenable to me. I, I just fell in love with it. I'd love to see what Giacchino could do for a Star Wars movie when he has time to think about it. Let's move on to Solo by John Powell, which is very different for a Star Wars score stylistically. In terms of a lot of percussion elements, which are more in Powell's own style than you would expect from a Star Wars score, the way the strings are used, to me, is very reminiscent of Powell's other scores, especially the How to Train Your Dragon series. But the brass, especially, is one element that is very Star Wars, that is very Williams. So there are elements that keep it in that milieu, and there are elements that set it apart in terms of the tone of the movie and the tone of the score. And I wonder to what extent Powell was more able to branch out into his own style in the Star Wars context because Michael Giacchino had already written your prototypical, almost but not technically, Williams score for Rogue One. So we already had a Star Wars movie not scored by John Williams that had a very John Williams-style score. Was that something you think that allowed Powell to branch out a little more? If I was going to cite anything that supported the slight change in style, I would cite the prequel trilogy. I mean, maybe they two play in concert, but I wouldn't look to a non-Williams Star Wars score that feels very much like a Williams Star Wars score. I would look at the Williams Star Wars scores that don't feel very much like Williams Star Wars scores. As sort of a way to say that a Star Wars score can feel very different from A New Hope if we want it to. After all, look at The Phantom Menace. I suppose. And there are, of course, percussion elements in the prequels that make those scores stand apart. Like there are new kinds of percussion styles for Solo. Yeah, that's sort of the style of the solo score, is everything is jaunty with a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of rhythmic percussion. Which makes the couple of times that he doesn't do that stand out all the more. Particularly the vocal chorus with the Infant's Nest theme. And the couple of times where he uses original Williams themes as, like, the way that other movies would score a religious revelation. 
Like, he scores Han Solo seeing the Millennium Falcon for the first time the way you would score Moses seeing the burning bush. Like, the only thing missing is the line of dialogue saying, Behold my glory. My name is Lando. I am that I am. At points like that where he drops the percussion out, it adds to that feeling that the theme is you being used as an honorific in, in a very reverential manner. Yeah, the word I kept coming back to as I was listening to Solo again was reverent in the way that he uses Luke's theme almost as a theme for Han's destiny, and the religious sound that he gives the Rebel fanfare a couple of times. All of that's in the first half of the score, though. You can basically split this score into three parts. The first part is, like, almost entirely driven by the new Han Solo theme. And then the middle part, you get like a nice mix of things. You get the Infant's Nest stuff. You get a couple of heist tracks. And then after the heist, starting with their escape, it just goes wholly over into, okay, let's just dump all the original themes in here that we can. Luke's theme, the Rebel fanfare, the asteroid field, <laughs> TIE Fighter attack. Just everything gets dumped in there. In addition to the new themes for this movie that are still there with them, that first couple of tracks after the heist are, like, in some ways, it's kind of a confusing mess. Just too many themes used with very little rhyme or reason. I think my favorite metaphor for that is one that I use for a lot of big blockbusters that are throwing a lot of things at you all at once. It's kind of like drinking from the fire hose. Just, everything's coming at you, and it's a little dazzling. You can make enough sense of it, I suppose, like when Han does something and he uses the Han theme, or when Chewie does something and he uses the Chewie theme. But you can't even make excuses like that for when he uses, like, Luke's theme, or the Rebel fanfare, or the Death Star motif, or the asteroid field. <laughs> like, those are literally just, hey, oh, hey. This sounds good. <laughs> well, there is some thought behind it. Luke's theme is being used more for Han's destiny and, and the big waypoints that we know have to happen when he sees the Millennium Falcon during the Kessel Run. The Rebel fanfare, as we've talked about in a couple of these shows, is used more and more as a general theme for the Falcon. So, those do have some bearing, and some context. Asteroid Field is here because it's fun. And TIE Fighter Attack is here. Again, it's associated with the Falcon, but also, hey, it's fun. And listening to this entire album again, 
the percussion elements in the rest of the score do put the trip-hop drumming over TIE Fighter Attack in a little more context. Let's talk a little bit about that new Han Solo theme. John Williams decided when they were making this movie that he could not let the Han Solo spin-off go without writing his own theme for probably the most major character from the original movies that he hadn't written a specific theme for. And the theme that he provides here is another one that has multiple elements to it. There's a broadly heroic melody, there's a more action-oriented rhythmic element, there's another melodic element that is related to the other two but I think is slightly different. those three are used prodigiously by John Powell throughout the score. He builds most of the score around the different parts of the Han theme and is able to keep it really fresh as he does so because he's able to use different elements of the Williams material at different times to kind of keep it varied. Yeah, if there was one criticism I had, it's that the first half of the movie it's just so much hand theme. Especially in contrast to the second half of the movie where they branch out from there. It is true that most of the characters that Powell provided new themes for are mostly in the latter part of the film. Just due to the structure of the story. I mean, there's a tiny part of the love theme early on when Han is escaping Corellia and he's separated from Kira. There are small bits of a couple of themes, but the theme for Beckett and the Gang of Smugglers, the theme for L3, the theme for Chewbacca, come in gradually as each of them comes into the story. And they're not all assembled together until a ways into the film. Yeah, you still haven't shown me the difference between the gang theme and the L3 theme. I literally cannot tell the difference. Even playing them one after the other, like one that is supposed to be the gang theme and one that's supposed to be the L3, I can't tell the difference. I will admit that on first listen, when the film first came out, I saw people talking about several of the new themes. It took me a while to detect them. <laughs> And I had to be specifically pointed to a couple of them, because it can get a little hard to keep track of sometimes. Especially listening to the entire Star Wars series with hundreds and hundreds of themes by now. But that is probably my favorite theme in this. 
I don't know if it's the best theme, but it's definitely the best used. Especially in the heist track where they use it as a march. Like a jaunty march for their dilithium heist. Whatever the hell they're stealing, I don't remember what it's called. It's it's basically dilithium. Sure, yeah. Those tracks are really a whole lot of fun. The only thing that really doesn't work for me, and we covered this in when we reviewed the score in detail, is that love theme. It just it stands out as so stylistically different from everything else in the score. Like we said, everything in this score is basically kind of jaunty with a lot of rhythmic percussion. To the point where we have this great new creation, TIE Fighter Attack plus Drum Kit. <laughs> Everything in this movie is sort of jaunty, with a lot of rhythmic percussion, except that love theme, which every time it comes up, it sounds like an excerpt from a movie score from the 1940s. It does stand out from everything else, but I think there are so many clashing elements coming together in this score. You have the quotes of Williams' material from the 70s and 80s. You have John Williams of the 21st century contributing a new theme in the style that he has now. 
you have John Powell bringing his signature style to it. What's one more entirely different context coming into everything else? Well, yeah, but all three of those are working together. And the fourth one is just sort of off on its own here. Like I said, the love theme sounds completely unlike any other music in this movie. I mean, there are themes in this movie that were written in the 70s and 80s, and it's orchestrated in a very modern fashion with a lot of that percussion. But the love theme isn't. You know, TIE Fighter Attack gets a drum kit. Luke's theme and the Rebel fanfare get, like, twisted around and played in their sort of, like, happy, jaunty way as part of the action sequence. The love theme just is what it is. Like I said, it, it sounds like it was tracked from a 1940s score. That's the way it's orchestrated. There's very little variation on how they use it. It's not orchestrated in a wide variety of ways. It never gets played in the same sort of swaggering, jaunty fashion that all the other themes do for most of their usage. It never gets played with the drum kit the way that everything else does. It's always its own separate thing that stands out as not fitting in with the rest of the score. That's fair. It, it absolutely stands out. The other thing that doesn't really work for me would be the Chewbacca theme. Because I don't hear that and see how it connects to Chewbacca in any way. I mean, it just sounds like a triumphant, celebratory flourish. Nothing about that theme says Chewbacca to me. The first phrase of the Chewbacca theme is based on part of the Han theme, which I think is a very interesting and very intelligent way to link them together, the way that they get linked together in the story. In at least one arrangement, the Chewie theme also gets an acoustic guitar, which is a first for Star Wars. It's kind of a gentle theme. It's very warm. And I think that reflects the friendship that develops between them, as well as the warmth of Chewie's reunion with the other Wookiees when he finds them during the heist sequence. So there are ways that I think it does work. I think it really says something, though, that... I mean, the original trilogy has a fairly narrow scope of, like, what feels like it fits into that milieu. To the point where even the bass chorus they used for the Emperor in Return of the Jedi was sort of stepping outside of that a little bit. 
But after the prequel trilogy and after everything else that's existed in the franchise, we now come to the point where you can have something like that Infant's Nest theme and it doesn't even sound out of place. After Duel of the Fates, very strong, forward-facing chorus is part of the landscape now. And of course, Duel of the Fates is back in this movie. What? During the Darth Maul sequence. Oh, Jesus God, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> well, now that I've made you depressed again, I think it's time to wrap up this first segment and move on to a whirlwind tour of a great many things. We have many other people's contributions to the music of Star Wars over several decades that we will be strumming through after this. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Place Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFoundation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceFoundation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation Pop Feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offered tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placemation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceMation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Ojaba. Ojaba. 
Be sure to follow all of the contributions to Star Wars Month, but we also have plenty of other great content for you on our two podcast feeds here at Place to Be Nation. The Place to Be Nation pop feed includes The Hard Traveling Fanboys, the longest-running weekly episodic comic podcast in all of Place to Be Nation, featuring the talents of Greg Phillips and Nick Duke. DC4U, an in-depth look at the world of DC Comics with Russell Sellers and Todd Weber. Marvel Age, where Nick Duke, Tim Capel, Russell Sellers, and Todd Weber are going through the history of Marvel Comics. Laugh-In Theater, a live-watch comedy movie podcast hosted by Andy Atherton. The Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular brings you deep thoughts on pop culture and the wider culture from the minds of Glenn Butler and my family and friends. The Great Debate, where Andy Atherton leads a panel of guests through a series of arguments on topics far and wide. This Week in the NFL, where Cowboy and D. Amato take you through recaps and previews of each week of the NFL season. The NBA team, Adam Murray and Andrew Reich, cover the world of hoops from coast to coast. The Year in Pop, a deep dive into pop culture year by year, hosted by Andy Atherton, Scott Criscolo, Dr. G, and our friend Mr. D. Amato. Sunday Groove, a podcast for music lovers, hosted by David Sunday. Looking Forward, Looking Back, Pop Culture and Sports Editions, hosted by Andy Atherton and The Cowboy, respectively, plus special topical podcasts and pod blasts as events warrant. The Place to Be Nation wrestling feed includes The Place to Be podcast, the mothership of The Place to Be, where JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo take you chronologically through the history of WWE. PTBN's main event, where Scott Criscolo, Nate Milton, and Steve Willey cover current events in the world of wrestling. Body Press Your Luck, a brand new wrestling game show hosted by JT Rosero and Jordan Duncan, plus monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, and much, much more. Don't forget to check out PlaceToBeNation.com every day. We have new voices and fresh takes bringing you articles on topics in the worlds of sports, wrestling, and pop culture, as well as our mainstays, such as Scott Criscolo and Logan Crossland's college football campus hot takes, and the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, my weekly link roundup covering things I've seen online that make me laugh, make me feel something, sometimes make me think, and I hope they do the same for you, coming to you every Wednesday. And if you're shopping from Amazon, be sure to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Place to Be Nation homepage, or use placetobenation.com slash Amazon. And now, back to the show. Let's start by defining the scope of what we're doing here, because Star Wars is a large and sprawling franchise, and we don't have infinite time if we want to get this show out in time for Episode Nine. There have been a million and one Star Wars video games, with scores ranging from the midi glory of X-Wing and TIE Fighter to full-blown original orchestral compositions. We don't have the time right now to do justice to all of that on this show. That's a project for another time, when we have neither a deadline nor a dozen other scores to review. If you have a favorite Star Wars video game score, please let us know and we'll try to include it in the future. Also not covered right now will be the new score for The Mandalorian. We'll be doing a full review of The Mandalorian, hopefully after the show finishes airing, and we'll talk about the score then. Also, we just covered like 10 Star Wars movie scores, and next week we'll be covering another one, hopefully. And we also need to get going on next year's Oscars show, because apparently the Oscars are like the first week of fucking February now. And plus, we're going to try to squeeze The Mandalorian in at some point. 
and there's like only so many scores I can hold in my head at one time and think about critically. So, in this section of the show, we're going to be covering some Star Wars spin-off scores that were each important or significant to the franchise in some way. We're going to start with the very first post-Jedi spin-off movies, The Caravan of Courage and Ewoks Battle for Endor by Peter Bernstein. Peter Bernstein, of course, is the son of composer Elmer Bernstein, one of the greats of the 20th century. And I think you can really feel that influence in his Ewok scores. These come pretty early in Peter Bernstein's scoring career. He had worked for his father as a conductor and orchestrator on several of his scores, and they would work together for years after this as well. So that influence I definitely think is there. The first theme on the album that was released for the two Ewoks movies starts a little like one of the themes from the Ten Commandments, actually, which is interesting to hear in putatively a Star Wars film. In fact, I think the Bernstein influence there is rather stronger than the Williams influence, which for these first Star Wars spin-offs is interesting. I think these scores are pretty listenable. They're very melodic, very tuneful. I love that that's the criteria now. Well, there's a tune! Yay! Well, there, there are tunes, there are repeated themes, even in this short selection that was released in the 80s. I heard an interview with Peter Bernstein recently on the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast where he mentioned the spotting session for his first Ewok movie when he sat down with George Lucas and they started the movie and Lucas said, this is where the music starts. And then they watched the entire movie and the movie ended and Lucas said, this is where the music ends. <laughs> Spotted. <laughs> Now you know what you need to do. <laughs> that in-between time is where you put the music. Exactly. Not before the beginning of the film. We don't do overtures anymore. I found this score, like you said, it's listenable, but it's... I'm going to be saying this a lot during this section. Spoilers. This is very listenable, but it's nothing that's going to keep my attention as soon as we're done recording this show. Like, it's fine, it's enjoyable enough, if you put it on while I'm doing something else, I'm not going to complain about the noise intruding upon my consciousness, but it's nothing that's going to stay in my head past the time when you hit stop. Contrasted with the John Williams Star Wars scores, which have stayed in my head since I first saw the movie when I was, like, five. I'm never quite sure how much of that is due to how much more music I've listened to since Star Wars was all I listened to during a phase in my life, and how much of that is due to the inherent quality of the music I'm listening to now. 
I guess imprinting on a young, unformed mind can be part of it, and nostalgia can be part of it, but I mean, like, Giacchino Star Trek scores from 2013 will stay with me forever. Yeah, there are absolutely new things that do stick in my head like that. We were just talking about Rogue One like an hour ago. <laughs> that gang theme march from Solo, that's going to stick with me forever. The Portals track from Avengers Endgame, that's going to stick with me forever. Yeah, true. So, I mean, it's not like it has to be something I loved when I was five for it to stick in my head like that. Sure, it's not an absolute rule. And I do think there's a definite shift, obviously, going from Williams's original trilogy scores to these first film spin-offs. You really feel the smaller orchestra, for one thing. Definitely. E even in addition to the compositional style of the pieces themselves, you absolutely feel the size of the orchestra. And of course, owing to the tone of the films, it's a little more kid stuff. I can see that. There was one of the early tracks where it just... The impression I got from it was just, like, generic kids' movie heroic fanfare. There are some of those, yeah. I find it very interesting that at this very early date in terms of Star Wars spinoffs, they felt no compunction whatsoever to tie back to the Williams material, which already by that time was iconic and iconically associated with Star Wars. But they did not in any way quote the Williams material or nod toward the Williams material or use excerpts from the Williams material. This is just a completely original score that if you didn't put Ewoks in the title, you wouldn't have any idea this had anything to do with Star Wars. Yeah, there's one tiny, tiny, tiny bit of the Ewok theme once in the selections on this album. I, I haven't actually seen these films, but on this album there's that one tiny little bit that, if you didn't know it was the Ewok theme, it's a few notes punctuating the end of a cue. Compare that to Giacchino in Rogue One, which is just built from the ground up to sound like a Star Wars score, and Powell in Solo, who just fills the second half of that movie with Williams themes. Right. I think that's a shift in the mentality of how these things are being approached. I think in Rogue One and Solo, there's more of a concerted effort made to constantly convince the audience, this is Star Wars, this is the Star Wars universe, these are Star Wars characters. And so they're pounding, in the case of Rogue One, the style and some of the themes, and in the case of Solo, a lot of the themes while moving into a somewhat different style. The, these Ewok movies obviously have a different approach. They're basically fairy tales. And they're scored like fairy tales. Do you think that different approach is just because the thinking has evolved over the years? Or do you think that's because the fandom has evolved over the years? 
Whereas these Ewok movies were aimed at children in the mid-80s, and so they're just like sticking Ewok in there, kids like the Ewoks. Whereas Rogue One and Solo are aimed at people in their 30s and 40s who were the kids in the 80s and now live to shit on anything new entered into their fandoms. That's absolutely part of it. The audience has shifted, the expectations have shifted, the sort of corporate mandates have shifted, the corporate environment that Star Wars is occurring in has changed, from basically George Lucas's fiefdom to the benevolent despotism of Kathleen Kennedy. The benevolent despotism of a mouse which will never go out of copyright. I intentionally didn't call that one benevolent, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the flat-out despotism of a company that rewrites copyright laws whenever it suits them. To save their mouse, yes. I don't really have any deeper thoughts on either of these Ewok scores. They're fine, they're inoffensive, they're ultimately nothing I'm ever going to think about again in my life. I thought the album was an entirely pleasant listen. A couple of the themes I thought were nice. The only theme I remember is the one that's the Star Trek original series theme. <laughs> okay. on to a rather unique entry in the musical canon now, Shadows of the Empire by Joel McNeely. The book. The score. The book wasn't by Joel McNeely. Indeed not. That would have been something. If somebody wrote a book and then wrote a score for it. Well, I don't know if Hans Zimmer ever writes a book. I was about to say, usually anyone that would do that is either not a good writer or not a good composer. I don't know how good Hans Zimmer is at writing books. Is that the hot take for this section? Could Hans Zimmer from 2000 write a book and then write the score for it? Anyway, Joel McNeely. Joel McNeely. Joel McNeely had previously done some episodes of the Young Indiana Jones series for Lucasfilm, and the concept of doing a book score was rolling around for a little while. Uh, Robert Townsend from Varese Sarah Band Records had originally intended to have someone write a score for the Thrawn books. Really? That early? Yeah, and then mm. Shadows of the Empire came along and it was becoming such a big deal that it was decided instead to go with that, and Joel McNeely had been working with Varese Saraband and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, Varese's orchestra of choice for re-recordings now as ever. McNeely had been conducting some re-recordings for them. They had done Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo and would go on to do many, many scores, mostly Bernard Herrmann as well. And during a... Uh, slate of recording sessions that they had set out. 
a two-week window appeared, and it was decided to have Joel McNeely go ahead and write and record Shadows of the Empire. So this is another Star Wars score that had a very short writing and recording window. Well, Shadows of the Empire was a whole thing. Yeah. Like, they did the book, and then they did a score for the book, and then they did a video game of the book, and then they also released action figures of the characters from the book. It was like a whole multimedia blitz. It was like basically an attempt to expand Star Wars franchising since they weren't making Star Wars movies anymore. Right. And so they were going to try to expand the franchising around this book slash video game slash whatever else they could make it. And it was really a full court press at the time. It was... I don't know, for, for any of our listeners who were either too young or just weren't sort of tuned into that area of the fandom, but at the time, this was a really big deal. And a big deal was made of it by Lucasfilm and all of their various brand partners who were involved. Kenner Toys and Veracerband Records, and it was a big multi-corporate interwoven thing where everyone was promoting Shadows of the Empire. Like, this is the new entry in the Star Wars saga. It's just not a movie. Everything but. And then, like, three years later, George Lucas went, Oh, by the way, I'm going to start making more movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this entire thing sort of... A, it wasn't nearly as successful as they were hoping it would be. And then B, like, two or three years later, George Lucas woke up and decided to start making new movies. And so this entire Shadows of the Empire thing has sort of been memory old. Like, nobody really talks about it anymore, but it was a huge deal at the time. It was a huge deal at the time, and Joel McNeely's score for the novel at the time was really, really well-received. Was it? It got very good reviews. It's continued to get very good reviews from various score websites that I've consulted leading up to this show. And I remember in the late 90s and early 2000s when I was starting to frequent message boards and discussion groups a little more, there were a lot of people saying that nobody wants this to happen, but if for some reason John Williams was unable to finish at the time the prequel trilogy, that Shadows of the Empire showed that Joel McNeely had the chops to kind of step in and take over that milieu, that his work here operated enough in that world while adding some of his own touches that made him the assumed next in line, if necessary. Now, of course, Williams has done two more complete trilogies, and there have been several other assumed possible, if necessary, replacements in the meantime, including Michael Giacchino, obviously, who got to do his own in the meantime. I remember listening to this at the time. I checked it out of the library. <laughs> I checked this out of the library and listened to it, and it didn't have any Star Wars themes in it, and so I didn't like it. I listened to it again this week to review for this show, and I can't say my opinion has improved that much. There's not really a lot there. Like, there's one new theme that sort of gets spotlighted, but not very well, and, like, I think I picked it out of, like, very few of the other tracks, and again, it was just sort of not used very well. None of these tracks, as I've been saying throughout this series, none of these tracks is built around a theme, either a Williams theme or a McNeely theme. I wouldn't even call it as listenable as the two Ewok movies. Wow. 
Okay. This score is a little confounding for me. I mean, I understand finding out that he had such a time crunch that's a factor partially, but again, we can talk about Rogue One again. Not having a film to draw sync points from, not having to synchronize to particular points in a film, not having to restrict your thematic developments to however long a particular scene is happening, being able to tell the story musically in any way that you want, that has got to be very freeing for a composer, I would think. It may be a little anxiety-inducing that you don't have your usual, like, input to react to and draw from in, in more of an interactive way, but, you know, he, he read the book and he had reactions to that and he was kind of feeling that. I did mention in my notes at at least one point where my reaction to one track was along the lines of, you know, normally a track like this I would try to excuse by saying, well, maybe it's just really tuned to what's going on on screen, and without that part of it, it feels incomplete. Except, this wasn't tuned to anything going on on a screen. Right. It was used in other things later. Wikipedia tells me that some of it actually was in the Shadows of the Empire video game. I didn't believe that that was the case previously and apparently in the Shadows of the Empire audiobook as well, but it wasn't specifically composed for those. So it's a little odd to me that some of this is as unfocused as it is. I haven't read the Shadows of the Empire book since 1996, so I did wonder at a couple of points, like, would some of these tracks click in my head better if I could remember the book better? Which I guess is sort of this soundtrack's version of maybe it works really well with whatever was happening on screen. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say this is terrible. I mean, it's better than the prequels. Or it's better than Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith. And there are a couple of good tracks. There's a couple of pretty good action cues that, you know, sound exciting. There's a lot of this that's eminently listenable, but again sort of like the Ewok scores, ultimately it's nothing that's going to stick with me. The main theme that McNeely is adding here is for... How, how are we pronouncing this dude's name? <laughs> can, can we decide this? I looked up a thread on the Force.net and I'm just going to go with this. <clears throat> the main theme that McNeely is adding here is for Prince Shizor. That's how the internet told me to pronounce it. Shizor? That's what the internet told me. Do you want to do something else? <laughs> I've never been good with these exotic spellings. My pronunciation is much too pedestrian. Hmm. Like, we have letters that make a she sound. And those aren't the letters used to spell this dude's name. But okay, go on. <clears throat> in some of the variations in this score, I really quite like Shizor's theme. God, that sounds so bad every time I say it. <laughs> but put your head down, nose to the grindstone, keep pushing, keep chopping that wood. We gotta do this. <clears throat> Especially it's more forceful renditions, but there's another gentler one late in the score as well that I think is pretty effective. The problem for me is that when I'm really trying to lock into a new theme that I'm not familiar with yet, if there's a track marked Shizor's Theme, 
I think it should have had more of Shizor's theme in it. You don't think it should have, like, three minutes of random noodling around before they finally play the theme? In the first three minutes, there's, like, a bit of it once, but then the more forceful, obvious... I need to be hit over the head sometimes to really remember a new theme, right? So that version of Shizor's theme, you're right, doesn't come in until about three minutes into this track. So that's an issue for me. my notes for that track i have written at least three different times is this the theme <laughs> at one point there's like a warning klaxon as part of the music and i'm like well the bad guy literally having an alert klaxon on his theme is a little on the nose but i mean it could be interesting let's see what he does with it but then 30 seconds later there was something else that i thought might have been the theme the liner notes for the CD of this score by McNeely and Robert Townsend describe each track, and several of them are described almost as montages going through the locations in the novel. There's one in the Imperial City that's described like you're moving through the city and seeing various parts of it, and the description for Shizor's theme almost sounds like a montage of that whole environment of his palace where the final battle takes place, and the city surrounding it, and that whole environment. So, taken from that perspective, I can see how they got to the various segments of that particular cue, but as a way to really present your new theme and, and really put that forward, it's a little unfocused. The theme itself, I think, is really compelling once it actually gets going. I just wish there was more of it. I wish there was more of any theme in this. I wish there was more of all themes in this. Alright, maybe not all themes. I wish there was more of about three to five selected themes. He was very judicious, or limited if you want to phrase it that way, in his use of the original Williams themes. Are there any Williams themes used between the first track and the last track? Yeah, the Imperial March is in there a time or two. The Imperial City thing has the Imperial March, doesn't it? And when the Imperial March comes back in the last track, there are some interesting variations on it. The last track has a lot of really heavy, I'm assuming it's for an action scene, because, you know, that's how these stories end. It has a lot of really energetic, heavy music. And then it comes out of that with this, like comparatively very sedate rendition of the Imperial March, which sounds really weird when the Imperial March is the calm-down music. 
there's a section in that track that kind of combines or alternates that low-key version of the Imperial March with Shizor's theme that I think is pretty interesting. There's a part that you pointed out where there's almost a heroic galloping build-up of the Imperial March. Yeah, it sounds like the build-up to, like, Luke's theme or the Force theme or some, like, really bold heroic moment, except it builds the Imperial March. From what I've read on the internet, trying to refresh my memory about just what the hell the plot of this thing was, the entire last battle is our heroes rescuing Leia from Shizor's palace. You know, Luke has Rogue Squadron, and Lando is flying the Falcon around, and they're engaging Shizor's forces, and then, at the end, the Imperial fleet shows up, also to destroy Shizor, and so, yeah, it's almost like the Empire saves our heroes. They're able to get away because they're concentrating more on Shizor than the Rebels. Hooray. I did read one bit about writing the book, where the author, Steve Perry, says that the people that he was working with from Lucasfilm, they had a few mandates for the story. One of them was that he had to have a Han Solo replacement character who could have all the sarcastic Han Solo lines, and that's why they created the character of Dash Randar, I think is his name. Dash something or other. That's why that character exists, because they wanted there to be a Han Solo analog and also, the people behind the project wanted... How do you pronounce that dude's name? Shizor. Yeah, him. They wanted his seduction of Princess Leia to be successful. And Steve Perry outright refused to write it that way for fear of fan backlash. Yeah, all the stuff with, like, irresistible pheromones, but she resists because she truly loves Han. Did you really have to put that in the book? <laughs> Yeah, that whole thing was kind of... Even in 96, that came off weird to me. And for that scene in this score, we have one of the places where McNeely is breaking away from the then-standard Star Wars sound the most, where the seduction of Princess Leia is scored with, like, a twisted waltz. Yeah, the beginning of that track sounds like it takes place in a French cafe. It's really stepping out of the box, because Twisted Waltzes are much more Danny Elfman than they are John Williams. <laughs> Especially in the 90s. 
talk about stepping outside of the norm of a Star Wars score, the Imperial City track you referenced before has a chorus in it. Oh yes, heaven forfend. Not just a chorus, but a chorus singing defined lyrics. I mean, that is something we've never heard in Star Wars before as of 1996. It's really McNeely putting his own personal stamp on the sound of Star Wars there. <laughs> so, overall, I don't really think McNeely was treating this as an audition tape, but that's the way that some people took it. But I think that's a context that really does the score a disservice, because just putting the Star Wars name on it, you're going to be comparing it to the Williams scores and inviting an even more critical reading in that context, I think, is unfortunate. There are pieces to like here. There are pieces of some of the cues that I think are compelling. Overall, I don't find it as successful as many other people did. My favorite part of the Shadows of the Empire score is that as late as 2005, excerpts of Shadows of the Empire were being posted online by breathless fans saying, oh, I just discovered this excerpt of the upcoming Williams score for X prequel that hasn't opened yet. Yes, that was... Like, from 98 through 2005, yes. people were breathlessly posting excerpts of Shadows of the Empire thinking it was a leak of the upcoming score. The one that I remember in particular was for Revenge of the Sith, when this track, I Am the Senate, was circulating around and around and around until people started pointing out, no, this is just Shadows of the Empire. So I guess to that extent, maybe he did duplicate the Williams sound. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just an indictment of the rest of Williams' prequel work. Or, of course, I don't think the bits that were passed around as putatively parts of the next Williams score, I don't think that included the waltz. What about the chorus? Well... I mean, Williams would never put a chorus in Star Wars. Let's wrap up this section with a look at the work that Kevin Kiner did on Star Wars TV shows in the 2000s into the 2010s. The Clone Wars show, the Clone Wars movie that was developed from that show, and Rebels. Kevin Kiner has done various television shows, including working along with Dennis McCarthy a couple of seasons of Star Trek Enterprise, which makes, I think, Kiner and Michael Giacchino the two composers who have done a significant amount of music in both franchises. What, they never got Jerry Goldsmith to do a Star Wars movie? If they had been doing Star Wars stories in the 80s, they might have. They got Goldsmith to do Supergirl. But Kevin Kiner's work on The Clone Wars and Rebels, before I listened to it, I expected it to be absolutely nothing. Just absolute wallpaper. And I was extremely surprised and very pleased to find that there are parts of it that are much more compelling than that, and it's much more listenable than that. I like how you included there are parts. Like, I was going to complete that sentence and say, I was pleasantly surprised to find out that only about half of it is wallpaper. <sighs> I greatly enjoyed the Clone Wars movie score. Really? That was the one that I liked the least. 
It didn't have a lot of, like, recognizably Star Wars material, but it was at least a very different style from other Star Wars stuff. There was a lot of percussion in it, sort of similar to what John Powell did in Solo. It was a really interesting, entertaining listen. I don't know that it's necessarily anything I'm ever going to go back to, but I was very pleasantly surprised by it. It's a solid listen. It definitely has that more percussive, more modern style to it. I think the element of the Star Wars environment that it picks up on is a heavy emphasis on the brass. The thing is, and this is true for all of these Kevin Kiner scores, they all are just sort of quick hitting. Like the Williams prequels will have like a six minute track of just like empty noodling around. And Shadows of the Empire has like 10 minute tracks with almost no identifiable content. All of these Kevin Kiner scores for all the TV shows and the Clone Wars movie version, they're all like a minute or two. And they're fast and they're up-tempo and they have a lot of energy and there's some interesting things going on even if it's not necessarily an identifiable theme. They're all punchy and high energy and it's a very entertaining lesson. Punchy, I think, is a very good word for these scores. It's got a good beat, it's got a good tempo, it, it's, it, there's a couple interesting things going on, and then it ends. And it doesn't continue on for another three minutes. I'm satisfied. When you get to the Clone Wars TV show score album, it loses some of that. It's still, like, fairly short tracks, but it loses that punchiness. It loses the percussion that was so entertaining, and it doesn't really replace it with anything. So, I mean, it's still quick bits. It's not like this long, ten-minute, ponderous piece of emptiness that just makes me want to never listen to music again. But it just feels so much emptier without the punchiness that the Clone Wars movie version has. I rather liked the selections on the TV album better than the movie album, actually. I felt that it had a more varied style. Some of the cues for more dramatic scenes I thought were pretty compelling. There were some, some integrations of the Williams themes that I thought were pretty interesting. There was one track with the Battle of the Heroes theme that was this nice, low-key, ominous version, which is very different from the way that Williams featured it.
there are sections that are suitably epic and brassy and sweeping, I found it a pretty entertaining listen. It was okay, but I didn't like it as much as the movie. There's even one point on the TV album that made me wonder if Kevin Kiner, of all people, is the one who figured out a new and fresh variation on the Force theme all these decades hence. If by new and fresh variation you mean he cut out a note or two in the end of the phrase... So that, at least, was impressive. What was impressive to me is the first season of Rebels. Yeah, that was... That soundtrack is such a cavalcade of Williams' themes piled on top of each other. And again, all the tracks are like a minute or two, or maybe the long epic ones are up to three. And it's just William's theme piled on top of William's theme, piled on top of William's theme, and they just come at you so fast I can't even keep track of it? That was an amazing listen. Out of everything we're discussing in this half of this episode, Season 1 of Rebels is the one that I may actually listen to again of my own volition. It's like drinking from the fire hose at times, yes. It's just so interesting, you don't know what's coming up next! It just, it, it just all comes at you. The, the main theme, track one, the main theme of Rebels, is a part of the Rebel fanfare, followed by a takeoff on Into the Trap, followed by a couple of different versions of the Force theme, followed by the end of the Rebel fanfare. In about a minute and a half or so. If that long. <laughs> it's amazing.
lot of that is so joyfully done as well. It has such energy. That's what made Season 2 of Rebels such a disappointment to me. Because Season 2 of Rebels, other than like one or two instances, is basically back to the pattern set by the Clone Wars TV score. Again, it's listenable enough, but there's just like nothing there that's going to attract my attention. The Clone Wars movie score album at least has the percussion and the punchiness, and the Rebel Season 1 album has just themes piled on top of each other like a messy dorm room. But the Rebel Season 2 and the Clone Wars TV album are just... There's nothing in there to attract my attention. It's pleasant enough, it's listenable, there's nothing in there that makes me want to never listen to music again, like Revenge of the Sith. But there's just nothing there to make me want to listen to it. There are still a few instances on the Season 2 album where he's repurposing the Williams music. There's one from a uh, space skirmish with Darth Vader that is mostly the Battle of Yavin, which is also used in Season 1 a couple of times. There's definitely less of it on the Season 2 album. It's depending more on some of the original material and some of the more dramatic pieces, especially toward the end of the album with the uh, confrontations between Ahsoka and, and Darth Vader at the end of that season. The thing that struck me listening to so many of these instances where Kiner is directly repurposing not just the themes but also the set pieces, the battle in the snow is featured into the trap you mentioned before. The thing that I was thinking of listening to some of those was Superman 2, where it's not repurposed in such a direct way. I mean, it's reorchestrated, obviously. We have a synth orchestra for one thing by this point, but just, like, directly taking pieces and kind of reworking them into the thing that you're scoring now. That's the comparison that came foremost in my mind. I wouldn't necessarily draw that comparison. I mean, I see why you do, but they're very different in my mind, because in Superman 2, the piece that jumps out as the one that's been reorchestrated like that is, like, a five- or six-minute main title march. Sure. Whereas you'd have to put together four tracks of this to add up to five or six minutes. Okay, fair. And, and within those tracks, the repurposing only lasts for, like, half the track. But, like I said, if there's anything in this whole and the rest menagerie that you're actually going to consider going out and listening to, I would highly recommend the Season 1 album from Rebels. It's just so much fun. It's pretty exciting, yeah. Like, 
even I couldn't keep up with noting down all of the various themes and references and whatever. And normally that's all I do. Because I'm bored out of my fucking skull. And so when anything that sounds sort of like something else, I immediately make a note of it. Because my brain is just searching for land in this sea of emptiness. Yeah, avid listeners might notice we've played the Sounds Like game kind of a lot in this series. That's all I do because so many of these things sound like nothing. <laughs> if we're listening to Revenge of the Sith or large parts of The Phantom Menace or like fucking Sicario or Jackie or goddamn Dunkirk, 99% of it sounds like nothing. So as soon as something sounds like something, I latch onto it like a fucking life preserver. <laughs> but I couldn't keep up with this Rebel Season 1. It was just trying to drink from the fire hose, like you said. to sum up, these are a few different approaches to adding to the Star Wars musical canon that we've listened to for this. There are the ones that most directly take inspiration from Williams's compositional and orchestrational style, you know, like Rogue One, Shadows of the Empire for most of its runtime. There are ones that branch out into the composer's own melodic style and orchestral style, the Ewoks movies, I think, and these Kevin Kiner things. I thought before listening to them that it might be pretty difficult when transitioning from the Clone Wars to Rebels to kind of adopt more of the classic Williams style in Rebels to set that show more in the same world as opposed to just, like, continuing the Clone Wars because it's a different time frame, it's a different situation, it's a different environment. But a lot of that is accomplished by repurposing these set pieces and themes, like we've been talking about. Otherwise, it's still very much in Kiner's own style. So there are all these different approaches to conveying the universe and conveying the environment. John Powell, as well, for Solo, worked to a large extent in his own style while adapting some of the stylistic elements, again, to put it in that universe. So, what do you make of these different techniques, and what was successful and what wasn't? This sounds kind of stupidly reductionist. The ones that worked are the ones that were good scores. <laughs> okay. G. Kino wrote a really good thematically driven score, and it worked great. 
Powell wrote a really good dramatically driven score, and it worked great. Peter Bernstein wrote background music for a children's adventure. And, I mean, it works fine for that purpose. Kevin Kiner wrote the background music for a cartoon show. And it works fine for that purpose. I should mention, by the way, that after our solo show, we did get some feedback on our discussion of the Clone Wars television series. And obviously these things have their very avid fans. We don't mean to disrespect that. I should explain my position on on the Clone Wars show, since I have been rather sneeringly dismissive of it at times when it's come up. Here is my opinion on the Clone Wars show as it formed when the Clone Wars show started. Because the Clone Wars show started in, like, 2008. It wasn't all that long after Revenge of the Sith. And the last fucking thing I wanted to watch at that point was a goddamn prequel to Revenge of the fucking Sith. (laughs) Alright, fair. And so just because I follow Star Wars stuff, I heard some things about the show. None of which made me want to watch it. The last thing I want to fucking see is multiple seasons of a television show focusing on the worst written character in the Star Wars canon. And oh, by the way, Darth Maul is alive, because we For fun, yeah. And so none of that exactly improved the opinion that I formed in 2008 when I said, why the fuck would I want to see a prequel to Revenge of the Sith? And then Rebels came along and it was from the same creative team and it was in the same style and so that joined in my sneering dismissal. And thus, dear listeners, my sneering dismissal of the Star Wars animated shows. The extent of my experience with these shows other than their score albums is a YouTube compilation I watched once of Darth Vader's scenes in Rebels just to see how those things were handled which included a lot of the story I believe in the second season with Ahsoka sensing Vader and then confronting him later on and all of that which seemed like a perfectly fine TV storyline I'm I'm sure the show is fine I don't think it's for me Thus endeth our hot takes on Star Wars cartoons. (laughs) I guess mine wasn't that hot. On that note, I think that'll do it for us this week on the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular. Thank you, listeners, very much for listening. Thank you for following our Star Wars Scores series. We will be doing a review of The Rise of Skywalker, in which hopefully I get used to saying that title, as our schedules allow. So look out for that in the future. After that, we'll be doing a sort of wrap-up show on Star Wars scores after we're able to properly discuss all nine of John Williams' contributions. And as we said earlier, hopefully, if our schedules allow, we'll get The Mandalorian in there at some point. From what I've heard on the internet, the music for that is interesting and divisive. So hopefully we'll get to take a look at that as well. You know, my favorite scores are interesting and divisive. Oh wait, no, my favorite scores are remarkably standard and full of brass. The takes will be hot.
Scott, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, good word. I mean, I guess they can. If they insist. If you want all my hot takes, <laughs> I'm on the Twitter machine, at SpectacularSco. Not hyping your MySpace anymore? You, you've moved on to 2007 and joined Twitter? I mean, if you want to find me on a platform where I'm actually able to use my entire name, then you can find me on MySpace. I'd like to get a MySpace message from somebody who isn't a generically named woman inviting me to a private sex dating site. So, listeners, if you're a woman with a unique and distinctive name who would like to invite Scott to a sex <laughs> site... Please, please, he is looking for you. <laughs> oh, God, that sounds terrible. Cut print. <laughs> If anyone out there would like to find me on the internet, I am at Glenny Bun on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. If you would like to see some of my takes. If you would like to be my friend on Pokemon Go. I'm slightly obsessed with Pokemon Go now, so, you know, message me on any platform where I'm available, ask for my friend code, give me yours. I would be more than willing to do that. You can also find me at placetobenation.com, 9 a.m. sharp, every Wednesday morning with the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a weekly link roundup of articles and items that I've found interesting or amusing in some way, and I hope you do too. Find that every single week, look out for the next episodes of our show, and we will see you next time. Scoundrack. Scound. That's that's the solo one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, some some franchises have a squeakwool. Star Wars has a scoundrack. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>